The Weigel Cast is part of the Hashtag Pressing Program, presented by GE. Welcome to another episode of Slate's interview podcast, The Weigel Cast. I'm Slate's political reporter, Dave Weigel, and my guest this week is Ralph Nader. Depending on your politics, you probably view him as either a legendary consumer advocate or as the man who spoiled the 2000 election for Al Gore. Or maybe both. Nader is done running for president. He turned 80 this year. But in his new book, Unstoppable, he turns his attention to the possibilities of creating right-left coalitions outside of politics, bypassing the parties with the help of dogged activists and of friendly rich people. What do you make of Eric Cantor's defeat in Virginia? Because when it happened, and when I was going to be talking to you, I said, well, this is this seems to be tailor-made for what you're arguing. This is the corporatist part of the Republican Party losing and his opponent saying, this is a corporatist I'm running against. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. I agree with you. The, the conventional uh, explanation, which withered rather rapidly after news of Cantor's defeat, that it was, it was a defeat on the immigration issue. That was only a small part of it. He made the point again and again of crony capitalism. He made the point of NSA snooping. Uh, he he made uh, a point of immigration, but from a, a different angle. The immigration was that this was basically Wall Street wanting to flood the country with low wage workers in order to reduce wages uh, overall for workers. It was the corporatist Republicans, just like the corporatist Democrats, and uh, he wasn't ready for it. Uh, Cantor wasn't ready for it. He outspent him 27 to 1, and he went back. Uh, it wasn't that he was remote from his district. He would go actually go back many weekends during the year. Uh, but who would he go back to? He would go back to his tight circles of political supporters and fundraisers uh, and uh, and not the people who vote. The interesting thing that Dave Bratt said, and this is a second lesson for progressives, was money doesn't vote, voters vote. Progressives and liberals are so deep into this fight against Citizens United, the Koch brothers, money flooding everywhere, independent PACs, non-disclosed donors, that they have veered away from what Bratt just said. They veered away from actually getting down, rolling up their sleeves, and mobilizing voters neighborhood by neighborhood. Wasn't this a bit of an outlier, though? He he lost the election, Cantor lost the election, and it's changing the way Republicans uh, look at their own voters and talk. But at, at the same time, the Chamber of Commerce, I'm surprised it took him this long to figure out they could spend money and influence elections, but the Chamber of Commerce has spent bigger than ever before in Republican primaries trying to get the candidates they wanted and generally succeeded. Uh, now, they had weaker, they had weak enough candidates. I think Bratt was, I mean, I talked to him before the election. He was impressive in some ways. It didn't quite get covered. But he wasn't the sort of candidate you usually look to as a, as a, as a king slayer. That's right. Well, even the Tea Party forces didn't support him, not because they didn't like him. It was because they, they thought he didn't have a chance. So his, his his victory was even more impressive because it, it wasn't even a Tea Party based victory. Now, so, how much have you looked into Bratt's own economics? Because one thing you spend some time on in the book is the the misuse, the misunderstanding of conservative economists of Adam Smith and of Von Mises. And uh, this is Bratt is hard to pin down, as I, I guess a lot of interesting writers and, and economists are. Yes, he is. He, you know, he teaches 
ethics, religion, and and economics, and has has written on it. Yeah, I mean they all have the, they all have those two sides to them. Uh, all of these people have two sides to them. One is, uh, you know, they hate government regulation of environment, health, and safety. <laughs> They're very much like uh, Milton Friedman, who I debated years ago, and he was uh, a real critic of the Federal Reserve. He wanted a minimum incomes policy. Uh, uh, you know, he, he had both sides to him, and that's what that's the case with uh, with Brett. Well, what do you make between the the Cokes and Ed Crane, who'd run Cato while they'd been funding other pro- projects? What do you think of their influence in politics? Well, they're the they're the classic corporatists in conservative garb, the Koch brothers. Ed Crane, the difference. Ed Crane told me he opposes all corporate subsidies, unconstitutional wars, the Patriot Act restrictions on civil liberties, and the Federal Reserve running amok. Uh, so you can see that he's not selective. He's, he's more universal. Whereas the Koch brothers will pick and choose. They'll be against certain uh, corporate subsidies and actually write an article in the Wall Street Journal, one of them did, on co- crony capitalism. But if you look at their sprawling giant empire, it's full of corporate subsidies. We'll get back to my interview with Ralph Nader in a moment. The Waiho cast is part of the Hashtag Pressing Program presented by GE. Hashtag Pressing is working with some of the country's best news organizations to bring you thoughtful discussions of policy, not heated arguments about politics. I'd like to thank GE for making this program possible. And now back to my talk with Ralph Nader. Have you seen any more progress towards getting wealthier, more progressive, or more collaboration-minded people in politics since you wrote uh, your novel about that? That's a good question. Several things. One is, we live at a time of diminished imagination about real possibilities for redirections in our country. So I, I wrote this book, Only the Super Rich. It's a what-if book. It's not a novel. Uh, I wouldn't know how to write a novel. It's political fiction, but it's a what-if. What if 17 you know, very rich people decided top down bottom up they wanted to organize the country and turn it around on major issues so i sent the book to all the protagonists and i got through to about half of them and they were bemused by it but you know they too suffered from a lack of imagination to take it to the next step i mean the whole all the changes in the book occurred because of their influence, their top-down, bottom-up strategy, if I had three or four intermediaries who knew how to get through to wealthy people because they knew X, who knew Y, who knew Z, uh, I'm really quite convinced that we'll get, we could get one or two to put some real money and establish nonprofit advocacy groups that are only uh, committed to the convergence uh, objective. That is, they don't, they're not like Cato or... EPI or, you know, uh, uh, heritage, they have to pay priorities to the issues that are funded and the issues to which their reputation is attached. So that's why we need new institutions that just deal with convergence. I'm not saying we need thousands of them. Uh, You wrote Bernie Sanders a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, after he started talking about running for president and said, you know, that in the Senate, he's a lone ranger. He's unable to form a core progressive force within the Senate. Is that failure of his leadership, or is that every, something else that you would you would attribute to the rigging of the system? Uh, no, I think it's his personality. 
Okay. He has a bizarre personality. I mean, he never shares his huge mailing list. And and it's always the Koch brothers are coming after Bernie Sanders give us money. And, I mean, here I am, an early supporter before he became mayor of Burlington. I've never had a harsh word to say publicly. And for years, I can't even get him to return the call. I can't get down to see him. It's bizarre. Mm -hmm. What's the utility of having a talented progressive and running them for president, either in Democratic primary or as an independent? Is that just be, is that just pointless when you when the other side has not in a primary? Not in a primary. In a primary, you can beat some of these people the way the Tea Party has, or scare the hell out of them. You change them by scaring the hell out of them. See, where progressives have never really focused is how do you change incumbents? And because most of them were not active in the 60s and early 70s, when we did change incumbents, I mean, when I came to Washington, most of my proposals would have had to go through Senator Warren Magnuson's Senate Commerce Committee. And Maggie was considered a total tool of business lobbyists, starting with the maritime industry and going to Boeing and so on. Uh, I mean, he, he was the go-to guy for the corporate lobbyists. When it comes to the, the politics of the left of the Democratic Party, just what would you recommend at this point in, in 2016? Primary challenges, a third-party challenge, what do you think would actually change what the party stands for? Yeah, first, primary challenges uh, at, the local, at all levels. At the local level, it's easier. Uh, a definite multi progressive challenge inside the primary to Hillary. Another eight years of Hillary, and you can write off, there'll be no distinctions. There will only be corporate liberals. There'll be no liberals, there'll be no progressives, nothing. These are the snake-charming saboteurs of the whole progressive tradition. They are Wall Street corporatists and warmongering militarists with silver tongues like they're they're for kids and early education and uh, you know the usual repertoire. So that's what I think, and I, I and I don't think they're really up to it. I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit with this book. We're dealing with some of the most seminal redirections of our country, where the left-right opinion is already established in public opinion and in the minds of millions of people. And they involve Wall Street and Main Street. They involve the military-industrial bloated empire. They involve civil liberties. They involve corporate-managed trade agreements, shredding sovereignty on the right, and shipping entire jobs and industries to fascist and communist regimes on the left. That's just four. That doesn't even include emerging ones, like the left-right convergence you're seeing operationally now in minimum wage. Restoring minimum wage, cities, towns, federal government is even, you know, Congress is getting the word. Finally, Obama's getting the word. They're making it a top-tier issue for November. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. If we want to, you know, twist the tail of our cosmos and stay uh, uh, remote from these other people, uh, we will continue to lose, lose, and lose. I'll just try to wrap up quickly. What do you think would have happened in... In 2000, had Gore been elected president, had you know Larry Summers continued on as Treasury Secretary, basically it looked like a lot of the Clinton apparatus is going to continue. 
into into a possible Gore administration. I remember that argument at the time. What would have happened to the country? Would have ha- what happened to the left? Have you th- ever thought about that? Well, you know, I don't have an hourglass. I'm not clairvoyant. I do know that he and Clinton passed a resolution through Congress in 98 to overthrow Saddam Hussein. So would he have invaded with troops? Doubtful, but you never know. He would have bombed because Clinton bombed. And uh, people forget that in the 2000 election, Gore was far more hawkish than George W. Bush. He had a bigger military budget, and he wanted nation-building. Uh, and then who, who knows what happens when you crank in Lieberman, right? <laughs> I mean, Lieberman was against the tort system. He wanted to revise Social Security in bad ways. Yeah, well, you see, we're up against a corporatist Democrat and corporatist Republican entrenched convergence. That's what we're up against. They've been converting for years, very successfully, I might add. Well, thank you, and th- thanks for talking to me, and have, have a good day. Okay, thanks very much. And that's it for this week's WagoCast. Thank you to our producer, Alexis Diao, to Slate's senior producer, Mike Volo, and to the executive producer of Slate's podcast, Andy Bowers. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out the ever-growing universe of Slate podcasts. I'm Dave Weigel, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.